Welcome back to Ufahamu Africa, a podcast about life and politics on the African continent. Thank you to our listeners for your patience these last couple of weeks as your hosts have been adjusting to a new normal under COVID-19. This week's episode will be brief and will focus on what we're reading and learning related to the COVID-19 pandemic, especially as it matters for Africa. I'm Kim Dion, one of your hosts, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rachel Beatty-Riedel. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Kim, and hello to our Ufahamu Africa community across the world. We're wishing you all safety and security in these challenging times. As we all experience various versions of lockdown and confinement and social distancing and the heroism of healthcare workers and essential service workers on the front lines, and also their victimization being sent to those front lines without sufficient protective equipment or tools to face the battle, it's tempting to think that this is the end of globalization. More barriers are erected, more walls are put up, increased limitations on mobility. And let's be honest, I mean, the barriers and walls were already certainly existing for the vast majority of the population of the globe. And the rate of return on global exchange has dramatically unequal dividends. And now with even additional spaces being regulated, access to work, markets, exchange, contact, communication, and within countries, not just between them. So yes, it's, it's tempting to turn inward, and xenophobia and exclusive nationalism have already been on the rise. We look at others as threats. But this is the moment when it is also really astutely clear that our human well-being is intimately connected, that the kind of innovation, scientific research, and collaboration necessary to address this pandemic is most rapidly and effectively achieved through international communication, and that a post-COVID world, let us hope sooner rather than later, will be dramatically shaped by the battle of ideas that this crisis and all crises catalyzed. This battle of ideas must recalibrate the nature of global exchange and rising levels of productivity to the benefit of people, a sustainable environment for human well-being, where we use increased productivity to meet the needs of our interconnected world in peace and in security. We need to share this vision because there are certainly other competing visions, and we need to work to make it happen. And to that end, globally, we are already seeing the potential for autocratic governments and would-be autocrats in any type of regime to use this moment to lessen democratic participation, to lessen civil liberties, to restrict political freedoms. We've seen dramatic scenes of police and security officers violently cracking down on citizens in the public domain who may or may not be breaking social distancing requirements. We've seen footage in South Africa, Zimbabwe, Uganda, and Kenya. Now, to be sure, there can be seriously legitimate reasons to postpone elections in the face of this pandemic. Without proper precautions and preparations and access of the population to mail-in ballots and access to voting for everyone, a rush to an election with suppressed participation has its own risks for both representation as well as public health. For example, amidst the coronavirus outbreak, Voters in Guinea backed controversial constitutional changes, which can extend the president's rules, in polls that were seriously questionable. But what measures are taken to assure safe and accessible voter participation in the future for all citizens? And what simultaneous changes are being made to increase executive power, such as decrees and states of emergency, limitations on public participation, and basic freedoms and liberties? So there are a lot of questions that are being posed both in the political and in the public health sphere, because they're so intimately connected in this structural crisis. Kim, what do you see happening in Africa on this front? There has been a range of responses to the pandemic in Africa, and I want to implore our listeners to remember that African countries have significant experience responding to infectious disease outbreaks. 
AIDS, Ebola, cholera, just to name a few. And so Africa might be the first place we should be looking to learn best practices of pandemic response. As I sit here in the United States where COVID-19 testing is really limited, I'm impressed, for example, with South Africa's health ministry having already launched mobile testing. Some are attributing South Africa's mobile testing launch to modeling a strategy after South Korea, which has had incredible success at flattening the curve of COVID-19 infections and deaths because of South Korea's widely available testing operations. But those people are also forgetting or erasing that South Africa has the capacity to do this mobile testing because for decades, South Africa has been fighting a serious AIDS epidemic and has used mobile testing in that fight. It was more than 10 years ago that mobile HIV testing started in South Africa. And some of these mobile testing units in South Africa incorporated TB screening as well. And while tuberculosis and COVID-19 are obviously very different, it's really important to note that before the COVID-19 pandemic, South Africa had the capacity to do mobile testing and screening for a respiratory disease. I feel a little desperate to point out the head start that some African countries have had because so much of the media focus has been on securitization. Of course, it's important that we report on how African governments and their security forces are using deadly force to get citizens to comply with stay-at-home orders. But in an article about the rollout in South Africa of mobile testing this week on the Voice of America news website, the photograph associated with this important testing strategy was of soldiers and tanks securing curfew in Cape Town. It had nothing to do with community health workers or or people actually doing the, the community testing that's happening. And allow me just one more comparison between South Africa and the United States in response to COVID-19. So today, Saturday here in the U.S., lots of Americans are figuring out whether they need to wear masks when they go out in public following a Friday afternoon press conference wherein our president announced a new recommendation by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that covering your face in public might help slow the spread of COVID-19, but that he himself was not going to wear a mask. And while there certainly was a debate about this in South Africa, South Africa's health minister, William Kize, publicly stated earlier this week that, quote, there is no question that the use of masks is one of the best ways of preventing the spread of infection. We recommend them, particularly where people have any cough or any symptoms in a situation where social distancing is a bit difficult, end quote. So, Kim, you know, this debate over masks Masks really highlights the important role of an open and transparent government providing the best scientific knowledge it has to inform the public. Now, Sherry Berman has a great article this week entitled Democracy, Authoritarianism, and Crises. And in it, she says, quote, An old adage has it that crises don't make a person, but rather reveal what he or she is made of. The same applies to political systems. During times of crisis, their underlying strengths and weaknesses are all laid bare. When the coronavirus crisis began, there was much discussion of how it revealed the underlying weaknesses of Chinese authoritarianism. Now, what I really appreciate about this article, among many things, is that Sherry Berman shows how not all democracies are alike, certainly just as not all authoritarian regimes are alike, right? So in in their responses to public health, to public policy, and response to meeting citizens' needs, and as so many citizens that we talk to in the U.S. and across Africa, and as demonstrated by Afrobarometer survey data, for example, can clearly articulate, citizens want democracies that can deliver. They want democracies or any political regime that can provide security and stability and basic needs while being able to maintain their rights. 
So that engenders trust in political institutions and social solidarity. While there's agreement that it is the government's job to provide for all and to use the resources of the state to do so to protect the country, then democracy should provide advantages in dealing with crises among other types of regimes. The opposite Democracy with weak institutions and exclusive zero-sum competition where one side is seen as winning against another side or against the other is certainly less equipped to deal effectively with health crises or any type of crisis. What we've seen is conflicting messages over best practices and delays in necessary policy responses. What we're likely to see in Africa are, again, divergent outcomes based on a few thriving democracies where policies and, um, and public communication is based on this kind of transparency and openness, and yet a majority of weak and ineffective democracies where multi-party elections themselves will not provide citizens the, result that, the results that they seek, further weakening the democratic basis of the country. And this is exactly why the kinds of limitations and freedom suppression that are accompanying confinement and lockdowns and quarantines are exactly so concerning about their long-term consequences for citizen well-being. Yeah, and as we watch COVID-19 continue to spread and African governments responding to the threat of COVID-19, we should also be mindful of which people are going to listen to their governments. As we had been regularly sharing with our listeners during the recent Ebola outbreak in DRC, citizen trust is essential for effective public health interventions. Now, there's an article forthcoming in the Journal of Politics by UC Berkeley political scientist Leo Ariola and Allison Grossman that studies disease outbreak and trust in Guinea. What I learned from their article is that people from politically marginalized ethnic groups, so in the case of Guinea, the pool, are significantly less likely to comply with public health advisories from government representatives as compared to public health advisories shared by local or religious leaders. So it's not just trust that matters, but we should be examining how ethnicity and discrimination shape trust of government and what that will mean for who will heed the advice of governments trying to intervene against COVID-19. Also, I didn't answer your question earlier um, specifically on elections, and it's it's an important one. Even here in the United States, I'm not sure what's going to happen in the run-up to the November 2020 presidential elections, and we have to wonder about other African countries holding elections like Cote d'Ivoire, which has elections scheduled for October. We learned this week that Ethiopia has postponed its national elections that were scheduled for August. 29th because of the COVID-19 pandemic. To learn more about Ethiopia's election postponement, I want to direct our listeners to the piece by Samuel Gedichu wrote for Quartz Africa. He puts the postponement into context, quoting, uh, for example, the major opposition candidate, Jawar Mohammed, as saying that Ethiopia's National Election Board, quote, was already behind the schedule by weeks before the coronavirus outbreak became an issue. There was no way they could have held the election as scheduled. The pandemic just gave them justifiable excuses. Exactly, exactly. And it's this concern about excuses um, for any variety of reasons for which particular regimes in place may not want to hold elections. That's so concerning. Now, I've also learned that the local election scheduled for May in Benin will be postponed due due to the coronavirus, and the new date has not yet been announced. Now, these elections are likely to be highly contentious due to recent changes to the political party charter and party candidate registration and eligibility, which means that at least one key opposition party has not been cleared to participate. And the stakes are really high since local mayors that are elected in these elections are needed to give signatures for next year's presidential candidates. 
So the elections have been postponed in the past in Benin due to technical or judicial processes to be sorted out and then successfully held in, in the past. So we'll have to see how the population reacts to this announcement. But for now, the country's really bracing for the COVID response and all eyes are on that. We'll also share some links on our website provided by This Week in Africa. A number of COVID Africa trackers are online. Those include The Elephant, BBC, African Arguments, Africa Center for Strategic Studies, and the COVID bar chart. Yes, and I think uh, the Center for Strategic and International Studies Africa, uh, led by Judd Devermont, also has something that that we'll we'll be sharing with our listeners. And there is a lot to read out there. And uh, I know just as, as, as a consumer of the news, Sometimes it's hard to figure out uh, what what's good and, and worth our time. So uh, in the coming weeks here at Ufahamu Africa, we're going to try to curate for our listeners some of the best work that's out there on COVID-19, highlighting in particular what some of our previous guests are writing and sharing. For example, Anna Mwaba, who was our guest in episode 25 a couple of years ago, drew on her research about international organizations to write a piece this week for Africa as a country on the roles of the African Union and the African Center for Disease Control in responding to COVID-19, so trying to understand a continent-wide response to the pandemic. So if you don't already know about the African CDC, she gives a really useful explainer on it in that piece. I also think there's going to be important work done by regional organizations. Just thinking about the research by Emmanuel Balagan, a political scientist at Webster University. He's been studying the variations in regional health surveillance by ECOWAS, SADC, and the East African community. And I hope we'll have a chance to chat with him in the coming weeks about how he's thinking about the current pandemic based on what he's learned about these regional health surveillance responses for earlier disease outbreaks. Also, Adia Benton, who was a guest on Ufahamu Africa in episode 20, wrote a brilliant piece for Somatosphere entitled Border Promiscuity, Illicit Intimacies, and Origin Stories, or What Contagions Bookends Tell Us About New Infectious Diseases and a Racialized Geography of Blame. Um, now, for those of you who haven't seen the movie Contagion, you know, one of these blockbuster films about a disease outbreak... I don't know if now is a good time to watch it, but but even if you haven't, you know she she does a really good overview of what what the film does and how we might think about that film in the current outbreak. And I just want to read an excerpt from her piece now. Quote, as more people fall ill with the virus in Europe, I've heard on Twitter, why hasn't this spread in Africa? With its weak health systems and neo-colonial incursions from China, this could devastate Africa. This same singular focus on origins without regard for inequitable visa regimes that allow for the free movements of North Americans, Europeans, and Australians through African ports of entry is also what makes the inevitable spread within Africa thinkable, if not possible. For it's not necessary the oft-mentioned African-China extraction connections that will facilitate its spread, but the relatively easy access that Europeans often have to African countries. Today, many of the African cases of COVID-19 are visitors from Italy and France, end quote. Another really helpful piece I read was brought to my attention by the guest from our last episode, Nick Cheeseman. It was an article by George Agola, who's a scholar on the faculty at the University of Central Lancaster, who has done research on journalists and the media in Africa. The title of Agola's piece, uh, which was published in the conversation, is Why Africa's Journalists Aren't Doing a Good Job on COVID-19. 
In it, he writes that African media are failing to address practical, historical, cultural, and political questions around the interventions aimed at stopping the spread of COVID-19. Instead, the continent's media appear to be reproducing internationalized narratives. Uh, and, and I saw that, right? So this, uh, this narrative of looking, focusing on uh, South Africa's securitization and not its mobile testing, I, I'm seeing, you know, um, just kind of reprints of the AFP article in, in South African newspapers, for example. And, uh, and as Ogola writes, right, these are feeding policy interventions that are likely not to mitigate this crisis and, in fact, potentially exacerbate it. So we've reached out to Dr. Ogola and are excited to report that we'll have a chance to learn more about his work on African media and how it matters for the current pandemic in an upcoming episode of Ufahamu Africa. Thanks, Kim, for that rundown of um, really useful resources. We're excited to post links, certainly, to what we've mentioned in this episode and bonus material, particularly that which we're curating that address um, COVID-19 on the African continent on our website, ufuhamaafrica.com. And to all of our listeners, stay well. That's all for this week. Find us online and tell us what you're reading, writing, and learning about the continent. Don't forget to follow and share your thoughts with us on Twitter at Ufahamu Africa. You can listen to Ufahamu Africa on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or on our website, ufahamuafrica.com. Ufahamu Africa is a podcast created by Kimmy Dion and supported with research assistance at Cornell University and the University of California, Riverside. Simone Perez, Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University Class of 2022, is Ufahamu Africa's Research and Production Fellow. Music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening, and until next week, Safiri Salama!